This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 372nd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most significant figures in the history of the music industry. He has never studied music or learned to play an instrument, but he has proven to be a remarkable scout of talent, a marketing genius, and a producer who knows how to shape a song and a career as well as anyone. His first job in the business was as an unpaid intern when he was 18, and by 23, he was already a mogul with his own label, Bad Boy Records, which lives on to this day and has introduced the world to artists like Mary J. Blige, Jodeci, Craig Mack, The Notorious B.I.G., Mace, Faith Evans, Lil' Kim, The Locks, Cassie, Janelle Monet, Machine Gun Kelly, and yes, himself. He produced three of Rolling Stone's 500 greatest albums of all time, Biggie's Ready to Die and Life After Death and Blige's My Life, and he himself has been featured on 15 singles that cracked the top 15 of the Billboard Hot 100, five of which hit number one. I'll Be Missing You, Mo Money, Mo Problems, Shake Your Tail Feather, Can't Nobody Hold Me Down, and Bump, Bump, Bump. As the New York Times once put it, he is the man who sold hip-hop to mainstream America. Known at one time or another as Puff, Puffy, Puff Daddy, P. Diddy, Diddy, and Love, I'm talking, of course about Sean Combs. Over the course of our conversation, the 51-year-old and I discussed the roots of his unparalleled drive and hustle, why getting fired at a young age was perhaps the best thing that ever happened to him, how Bad Boy Records came to represent East Coast hip-hop and became embroiled in a feud with the West Coast Death Row Records, which ultimately claimed the lives of Death Row's Tupac Shakur and Bad Boy's Biggie, and how over the years since... His relationships with West Coast artists like Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg have evolved. Why he made the unusual transition from producing to rapping to great success, and then began expanding his brand to even greater success into things like fashion with the menswear company Sean John and spirits with the luxury vodka Ciroc. Why he's now a proud executive producer of a live-action short film about police brutality called Two Distant Strangers, directed by Trayvon Free and Martin Desmond Rowe and starring Joey Badass, plus much more. But first, I was joined by Trayvon Free, one of the co-directors of Two Distant Strangers. Thank you so much for making time to do this. Congrats on the film. And for people who, who are not familiar with your work, which is amazing, you know, prior to this even, can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, your, your background in the entertainment industry that led you to this project? Yeah. So, um, I mean, first of all, thanks for having me, Scott. I really uh, appreciate it. And, um, you know, I started at The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And uh, from there, I went to 
any given Wednesday with Bill Simmons. I, I, was, I started out in the late night space and I ended up at Samantha B, Full Frontal with Samantha B. I won Emmys for John Stewart and Samantha, um, which were great. And um, yes. then I moved into scripted television. Uh, I started out on camping with Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor on HBO. And then uh, Black Monday with Don Cheadle, uh, uh, Jordan Cahan, and um, David Casp, who were great uh, showrunners and writers on that show. And I just, from there, started to work my way into film. And so I was, you know, having so much fun writing at the producer level on television. And I was always looking for, like, the next, you know, thing that I wanted to do. And it was to get into the movie business. And so that's where I kind of, like, started looking for projects and things to do of my own to kind of make a name for myself in that in that medium. Well, you've, it's amazing what a name you've made for yourself. And, and basically it's like, what's now six, almost six years of since the daily show. Uh, yeah. that's not that long. And yet all the nah. stuff that you just mentioned has happened and it's incredible. Uh, and I, I guess, you know, was film always in your mind somewhere that you wanted to end up, or is that just over the course of doing these other things that just sort of became the next frontier? No, no, it was always something I wanted to do. Like I knew early on at Daily Show, you know, I was only there for four years and it, and a lot of people work there. They, they stay there for a long time because it's a great job. It's a wonderful job and it's a place that's very comfortable and easy to stay. But I knew I wanted to, you know, break out into scripted television and to tell long form stories. And so uh, it wasn't for me, it wasn't a matter of, you know, if I would do movies, it was like, when, you know, when would I find myself in that space and also just feeling confident enough to actually try to do it and try to make a film of my own. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in scripted television learning how to run shows and direct and manage, you know, sets and things of that nature. And it kind of gave me more confidence in the film space. And so, uh, you know, I was looking for something I could do on my own or with, uh, out, like on my own, meaning like outside of like a studio or whatever to, yeah. to kind of like make a piece that was, you know, had my ID in it. So people knew what they were getting if they were hiring me yeah. to write or make a film for them. Well, I wonder if you can share. I know that this was not the original project that you were teaming up with Martin Desmond Rowe on. So was what was that and how did that lead to this? Yeah, so the the project that we were originally working on was this this amazing film that we're still going to uh, try to get out into the world called uh, Shopo, which is kind of uh, like a teenage rom-com set in, in Tanzania uh, starring the actual Hads of People in Tanzania. And it's kind of like a really cool, I use the example of like Roma where you take an indigenous people and you allow them to be the stars of their own story. And, and so, um, you know, we started writing this movie together. I went to Tanzania with him and met the Hadza. I stayed out, you know, in their Valley with them. It was really, really cool to like, you know, camp out with actual hunter gatherers and then go on a hunt with them and all that kind of stuff. And so we started writing that movie and, you know, last summer after George Floyd's murder, you know, we were writing this script for Shopo and this idea came to me for Two Distant Strangers. And knowing Martin had already had a film be nominated for an Oscar for the shorts category and he, how he, he knew shorts really well. I told him I had this idea and, you know, I think it could be a really cool story to tell and impactful, but also we can do it in a way that gets, you know, Oscar attention if we do it right. Mm-hmm. And when I told him the idea, he was like, 
let's stop this, what we're doing, and let's do this. <laughs> and initially, he uh, he was maybe like, maybe we should do it next year. And I just pushed him a little bit, and we made it happen this year. Well, and we should talk about the fact, though, that so, you know, you mentioned the the George Floyd uh, tragedy and the protests had started when this idea, I guess, really when you shared this with him, had there been a seed of this idea even before? Was there something about that moment that made you really feel that you needed to tell the story and do it urgently, get it get it out fast? Yeah, it was the fact that, you know, at the time. The stories of Breonna Taylor, Maud Aubrey, and George had kind of collided on each other. And in experiencing that, it felt like each time you would hear the story and see the video, whether it was Ahmad or George or Brianna, it felt like you were repeating this cycle of emotions, of really traumatic emotions over and over again. And then you would kind of get over it and they would subside and then you would see another thing or hear another thing. And so I remember watching the news one night and and I think I said out loud to my girlfriend, to some to the effect of like, this is like kind of like the worst version of Groundhog's Day. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and immediately I was like, oh, that could be a fun, awful short <laughs> film to write. <laughs> um, well, and so, yeah, for people who, who haven't yet seen the film, I mean, I, I, I won't, uh, I don't think it's, spoiling it to say, you know, beyond what you've said about it being a version of Groundhog Day, that essentially we're looking at this guy who does nothing, there's nothing wrong that he that he's doing. He's come from having a one night stand with a young lady and wants to go home to his dog. And no matter what he does in any variation of these scenarios that's like Groundhog Day, he just can't avoid experiencing police brutality. It's not like he is doing any particular thing to invite it as we see. And and that is, I know, the parallel with a lot of these situations. And so I just wonder, beyond developing this with Martin, I had read that you had a friendship already with Lawrence Bender, who people know as one of Quentin Tarantino's producers on the early stuff and uh, just a, a lot of other stuff that's mm-hmm. notable. And so here's a Here's a guy who's a few years older, a white guy who you, I believe, were spending a lot of time with during the period after George Floyd yeah. and while locked up with COVID. What did that add to the project in terms of just uh, nuance and thinking it through and planning it? Yeah, like, I mean, I mean, I actually at the time I was staying at Lawrence's house. That's how we ended up, you know, being in the same quarantine bubble. And so when when I had had the idea and I was starting to get um, the, laid the groundwork for it and put the f- film together with Martin, um, you know, Lawrence being a longtime Academy member, a longtime movie producer, he just, he just has a real savviness about, you know, how to make a movie and what you need to do and how to do it fast and how to do it. All the things we needed to ex- to do to execute, which was our time period, how much money it was going to cost, the conditions of COVID, all the hurdles we had to jump. He had experience on some level, um, you know, jumping. And that was invaluable to the project because he he just knew how to do the things we needed to get done. And so when I told him about the project and started kind of picking his brain about things and asking his advice after so long of of doing it, I was just like, why don't you just, you know, come help us produce it? 
And he was already in the process of, you know, working on uh, his short, his animated short of his own that he has and uh, The Heart of They Fall Which also movie. deals with uh, police brutality to some yeah. extent, right? Yeah, the Ahmaud Arbery story. And, and so he was like, you know, I'm happy to help. And he's been... He's been a huge help to the project from beginning to now, whether it's raising money or, you know, connecting to people who connecting people to the film who have been really, really helpful for us in, in getting the film out there while we look for a distribution. So we're talking at the end of January 2021. You started work on this film in terms of even just writing it. How recently? So I wrote it the last week of July in five days. This is incredible to turn around. Right. I wrote it it in five days. We raised the money in August and we we cast Joey in August and we shot it in five days in the last week of September. And then we edited it throughout October. It was a nonstop train, man. We edited all of October. We finished it up in November. And that was like, that was it. I mean, by, by the end of, by October 27th, we had a picture locked cut and we spent most of November just, you know, working on sound and getting the thing absolutely perfect because we had the time by December 2nd, we had it submitted to the Academy and that was kind of it's our, amazing. Yeah. Well, because I mean, the fact that you turned it around that fast, if you did that in normal times, that would be amazing. But to do it with COVID yeah. challenges, can yeah. you, how obstructive if that's the right word, were they, you know, what, how did it affect your process of making this? Cause there aren't too many movies that have been entirely right. conceived of, written, shot and edited and released during this period. Yeah. I mean, from, from what we were told, we were one of the first productions that SAG actually allowed to film during COVID. And we, cause we got our permit in early September and in LA, COVID in September was still like terrible. And so we we got lucky because right when we finished filming, they'd actually stopped giving out permits and they made people shut down productions again. And so we had to find a company. This was probably the hardest part. We had to find a company who would sign off on our particular movie because at the time SAG was recommending that people not have contact in the way that our actors have contact in their films or in their projects. And we knew the only way to make our movie was for them to do the things that you see in the movie. And so SAG wouldn't necessarily sign off on, you know, us doing that. And we had to find uh, a COVID, you know, testing company who would create a plan for our movie and then say that, you know, we can ensure that no one will get sick on this particular project. And that involved us actually upping the ante on their recommended testing um, times, how often. We just like ramped up everything. So we were testing every day in order to get a company to sign off on our particular movie. It ended up being like a quarter of our budget was just paying for COVID. Every time on a short. (laughs) And and, and your your cast and crew couldn't have been that large, right? I mean, how many people are we talking about? Uh, maybe in everyone in total, maybe 40 people. Wow. Okay. And we should note, you mentioned Joey. So the leading man of the short is Joey Badass. Yeah. The leading lady is somebody who I believe you're familiar with. Maybe I'll, yeah. maybe I'll let you share, share who she is. <laughs> yes. Uh, Perry is played by Zaria, who is also my partner. Um, yes. and she was, um, 
I don't think she's gonna let me give that role to anyone else. <laughs> no, well, she's uh, she's great in it, and uh, she is, and and absolutely, and so, uh, and then there's the cop who does a great job of making you hate him as well. So Andrew Howard, <laughs> Andrew. Andrew, Andrew Howard, yeah, Andrew Howard is just a, a fantastic actor. He, you, he's in Watchmen and Perry Mason and Limitless and all like these really really amazing projects and. I just knew he was going to be the perfect Merc when I even yeah. <laughs> thought of the whole idea to begin with. I just knew from our friendship, like, you can be this person that I, that I want you to be. And, uh, I mean, he delivered, man. If you, if you guys could see just the, the takes that we have of him, like, you could have used any of them. And he gives you something new in every take. And it's just, like, amazing. And him and Joey together which is so, so great. And if we could have made the movie 20 minutes longer, I mean, those two of them were just like, they were amazing. And Well, that's actually where I wanted to go next is, do you have, I mean, I guess it, it may depend on what happens over these next few weeks, but would you have any interest in expanding this into a feature-length film? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we've been talking about it since since the beginning of, you know, me and Martin sitting down to talk it out. And once I actually got it on the page and we were looking at it, um, it was something we could have easily seen as a feature length film. And people, funny enough, when we were sending the script out to get funding from people, uh, a couple people tried to buy the rights for the feature from me wow. that early in the process. And I just had to like, what? I appreciate it, but actually, no, not right now. <laughs> like, yeah, smart, make because this. now, yeah, this yeah. is like the best proof of concept that anybody could, could right. have. Uh, exactly. I mean, I, there's there's only a few examples where like, you know, you look back, I think Whiplash was a really polished short that clearly was going to yeah. turn into a great feature. And anyway, um, so... Along the line, you obviously, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you you kind of found some great high profile supporters to sign on as as executive producers, I guess, primarily to uh, help raise the profile of the project once it's done now that it's getting out to the world or at least getting out to the Academy first and then hopefully to audiences. Um, can you talk about just who some of these folks are and why they are appropriate to be? associated with a project like this? Yeah. So, I mean, the, when you look at our, our list of EPs and you look at the people who've supported the film through our campaign, what I love about it is all those people wanted to be a part of this after they saw the film or read the film because it, they connected to it. It like, it struck something up in them. And so I didn't have to beg anyone for anything. I didn't, a lot of these people I didn't even know before we made this movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know Kevin Durant. I didn't know Mike Conley Jr. We just sent them the script and we're like, hey, we're trying to raise money for this cause, for this film. And they said yes. And it, every EP on, on the film, there are people who, like last summer, were looking to help bring things like this into the world. And they gave us the the money to make it. And so when we got um, when we got done with the film and we started trying to actually, you know, finish it and showing it to, and we were showing it to people, people were trying to come on as EPs after the film was already done just because of how good it was and how much they liked it. And we were just blown away by it. And so, you know, we showed it to 
to to Sean and and he he was like, you know, what can I do? How can I help? Like this has to exist in the world. I need to tell people about this movie. And, you know, Kevin showed it to his teammates and uh, Mike Conley Jr. has been doing everything he can to get the film out into the world. And it's just when you listen to people talk about it, it's not about, you know, I just want to get behind a cool movie. It's this particular film about this particular subject struck me in this particular way and I want people to know about it. And so that's kind of how all of those people kind of fell into our lap in that way. Well, so to that, and we are now, you know, the ultimate spotlight in a sense, especially for short films in 2021 is, uh, you know, our Oscar nominations. And I think that that's part of why this is, um, you know, important to you guys and voting for that starts on Monday, the 1st of February runs through the 5th to determine the shortlist from which they eventually pick the five nominees. And I guess I just wonder as we, you know, kind of wrap up here, what would that kind of recognition mean for this film and to you and, you know, for people who are listening and want to see the film, will that dictate when and how they can see it or, or just what's the plan with that as well? Yeah. So, I mean, for us, like this movie getting, the type of recognition that comes with the Academy and shortlisting and all those things is more than just the art and the filmmaking of it. It's the message. It's, you know, you look at that, those names at the end of the movie and this is a platform and this is a, a community of people who can, you know, raise those names and that recognition to a, to a level that it's just not normally seen. And so it's really about raising the conversation that this movie can create to the level that, you know, the Academy can elevate it, but also um, to allow us to have a conversation around creating films and, and art pieces that can be this visceral and this, you know, this of the moment and this social. And so, you know, in terms of its visibility and its spread, we don't have a distributor right now, but getting that type of acclaim will only allow them to understand, you know, what this is and how seriously they should take it because everyone who sees the film has the same reaction. And so, you know, we run into a lot of people who say like, oh, we don't necessarily buy or do short films, but we think this is more than that. Like I've watched all summer how uh, streamers and platforms put black content at the front of their uh, platform when, when all the protests were happening and when George Floyd happened. And it's like, what better piece to accompany that particular thing, especially going into Black History Month than a film like yeah. ours. And so I, I think, you know, as, as a filmmaker, as a writer, nothing to me would stamp this particular message with a higher seal of approval than, you know, the people I work with, my community of writers and directors and filmmakers. Have you been in talks with anybody yet or is it just uh are you have you decided to hold off and see what happens with the academy or just like where do these where does it stand because to me as you've sort of indicated like this feels like this should be on the netflix homepage right. or apple or hulu or whoever i mean this it's there's it's the turnaround has been crazy quick and it's sadly as timely as ever and people would want to watch this. I mean, it's, it's yeah. you, it's Joey, it's people that, you know, look at that in the list of EPs. So I don't know. I mean, ha have you had any conversations yet about that? We had some conversations really, really early on with some people. 
And mostly before the film was actually made. And then around the time we did actually get it made and we showed it to one or two people, there were like ongoing conversations that never actually concluded. So they can still be picked up or opened up. And there was some there was like one or two people who were just like, we don't we don't necessarily do shorts, but we love this film and we think it's great. So now we're kind of just revisiting some of those conversations and hoping that new people come into the fold because we haven't exactly been to every partner or every distributor or every streamer out there. But, you know, the more that we do stuff like this and the the press that we've garnered just from people's response to it, I think will only help that situation. But I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, like, it is exactly of the time. And, you know, February 1st is tomorrow, the beginning of Black History Month. That's the thing. I mean, (laughs) I'm going to bet you that by the end of this month, you are going to be up on, I want to say Netflix, but I would say right now, play it safe, any streamer. But I I cannot imagine that we get through this month without this being up somewhere. It deserves to be. And people listening know how to find you if they want to check it out for that, uh, for consideration. And and Academy members can also, I guess, now see it on the Academy screening room, the mm-hmm. streaming platform for members, um, where all the qualified entries are. And I just uh, congratulate you on doing it. And, and thank you for doing this. Thank you so much, Scott. And now for my conversation with Sean Combs. I wanted to ask just before we get going, because I want to be respectful here. I don't even, I'm not sure what is the proper... Like which name should I uh, use? I've got. I know there's a few. Yeah, um, you know we're entering the love era. We're actually in the love era now, and so you know, okay. I'm definitely, I'm definitely going by love. But um, okay, I, st- I still answer to all of the other um, names, and so <laughs> usually when I have someone in this uncomfortable situation. I actually let them choose. That's the that's the beauty of being loved. So you really? can call me Sean, you can call me Diddy Puff, whatever, whatever, whatever. Yes, whatever you would like. You can actually switch up names in the middle of the interview, and I will answer to all the monikers. <laughs> all right. Well, I uh, I appreciate your flexibility, and uh, I guess you know uh, just because I think reflexively, I may say uh sean if that's all right i'm gonna start there and you know really really appreciate you doing this and uh on this podcast we kind of go through the moments that shape great artists just good bad and everything in between and so i guess we always do begin though right at the what's your dog's name my dog's name is kip i'm trying to get him to behave i got him sitting here but if he he gets off my lap (laughs) say say hi to sean hey what's up kip (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Kippy. Kippy. Well, uh, so <laughs> always just start right at the beginning and i wonder you know if you can share for our listeners where were you born and raised what did your folks do for a living oh i was born and raised in harlem new york my father was killed when i was two and um he did everything from serving the army to um drive a limousine and own a limousine company and everything up to being a a kingpin in Harlem and being assassinated when I was two. And my mother, she was a model and a mother. And then, you know, after losing my father, um, she became the hardest working mother in the world, working five jobs a day at one time. I don't know how she did it. 
And um, so I definitely come from roots of, of a hustle, uh, from the roots of Harlem, New York City, and raised by a single mother and a grandmother, like so many of us were that were born, you know, during my time. Well, you, it's, you know, you use the word hustling, which I think is is probably the most frequently used word for, uh, when it comes to people just describing your work ethic. I've gone back and read everything and it's amazing. It goes, it really goes back, I think, tell me if this is the beginning, but it sounds like there was a kind of a paper route operation. Is that, was that the beginning? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was the first entrepreneurial, um, you know, I would say my, my, my first, you know, jump into becoming an entrepreneur. And it was my first entrepreneurial project and mission was to become a paper boy. Even though I was, I was not of age. I was 12. You had to be 14 and you had to be an entrepreneur in order to figure out how to get the paper route. So I would reach out to the paper boys who were about to go to college and I would tell them, you know, um, instead of giving up your paper route, let me deliver it and I'll send you half of the money and you keep the half. And I went from being a 12 year old kid that couldn't get sneakers. And that really hurt me when I asked my mother for some sneakers and I saw a look on her face of disappointment, like she couldn't get it for me. And um, to, you know, to being a, you know, 14 year old kid legally with the paper route making a thousand dollars a week because I still kept all the other paper routes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it sounds like it's not that surprising that by the time you were done with high school and you're looking at college, you, you go off to Howard and you decide to major in business. And I know that uh, business majors there had to have an internship. Can you just talk about how yours wound up being with Uptown Records, even though you were in now DC and they're in New York? That's a, it's quite a distance. Yeah. Facts are that you, you didn't have to have an internship. I actually was dating a, a pre-med student at Howard and she had an internship. So I, I um, thought I was going to become a football player. God had other plans and I just loved music and it really helped to save me. And I felt like I had a great ear growing up in New York. I was there the first day they played the first hip hop record. I was just always tuned into the radio always loved music coming from Harlem. And so I, when she told me she had an internship and what it meant, I, I just thought that every industry had an internship, but actually in the entertainment industry, they had like the mail room or runners, you know, that wasn't really, you know, an internship really um, being able to be in the same rooms with the, you know, the surgeons or the lawyers or really being able to get your feet wet like that. And so when I came, I, I just looked on the back of the record covers or the albums that I liked. And it was it was two um, record companies, Def Jam and it was Uptown. And I would just call them every day and tell them I want an internship. And they'd be like, we do not know what you're talking about. We don't have interns here. <laughs> you must be thinking about a hospital or something like that. <laughs> and then, so finally, when I got through to Uptown, Andre Harrell, which is the place I really wanted to be, I had a, I had a meeting with Leo Cohen and Def Jam, and that was like overwhelming for me because I was still just, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. And it was, that, it was moving so fast over there. And, you know, when, once I've reached... Once I got in touch with Andre Harrell through my best friend, Heavy D, who's on the label, you know, I told him what an internship was, or at least what I thought it was. It was, I'll work for you for free. 
I'll do anything, clean the cars, get the coffee, do anything. I just want to be around to learn. And he was like, you mean free? He's like, this is a great idea. <laughs> and so he gave me the, he gave me the, he gave me the job. And then I had to figure out how was I going to be able to pull off college and, and be there two days a week for the internship, which was Thursday and Friday. So I coordinated everything with my Howard University community, who I still love to this day. And, um, who they made me a doctor, so I, I am Dr. Yes. Combs, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I would, I would just go, to, I would sneak on the Amtrak and, and go sit in the bathroom for four hours to get to New York. And then on Saturday morning, I would come back. I would get I would get my schoolwork. I would work until Monday to, to catch up with everybody. And um, I had some great note takers to help me to get to the point where, you know, I could follow my dream. And I'm just living my dream to this day. Well, before we talk about just how you kind of had this amazing rise at Uptown, I think we should say that at Howard, you were continuing to be entrepreneurial in the music sort of area and outside of music, right? I've been reading about these shuttles you were doing to the airport and uh, dance parties and all this, you know, and, and I guess at one point, you know, you... It, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you considered less above board ways of being entrepreneurial. And then you just I guess you were gravitating towards this stuff, right? Yeah, it was it, it was no rules. You know, you know, as long as I wasn't breaking the law and I had made a promise to my mother, I would I wouldn't go into selling drugs. You know, all bets were off. So if, if I had to, you know, make a deal with a person on a paper route or I had to turn three rented vans during Thanksgiving into, um, you know, shuttles to the airport. You know, if I had to, if I had to make lemonade or print up some Malcolm X t-shirts or just rent out a, 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 a ballroom and turn it into a nightclub, you know, it, it was like, you know, this is late eighties, this survival, you know, we, we can speak about it, but a, a lot of things that are going on in my surroundings I'm just trying to survive and I'm trying to take advantage of any opportunity I can so I can take care of my mother and my family. And also that that, you know, I could I could do what I was sent here to do. I felt at a very young age that I was sent with a purpose and that was to break down barriers for, for, for people of color and, and, and oppressed people by by um, by success and also fighting for, you know, economic and power inclusion, because you can have money, but you may not have the power to actually spread that to your community or make certain decisions. And um, so, you know, I, I, I always had that entrepreneur figuring it out a way, the legal way to make it. And um, I say that because, because, you know, my father was killed and that's the, that's the road I decided to go on. I don't I don't knock it or any knock anything else because people were actually starving, you know, where, where I was from and starving around Howard University. And and so it, it really just lit a fire in me because I had this my own world that I could actually um, empower myself to to make money in a, in a legal entrepreneurial fashion. And that's what I did. Um, there was one thing I did. Um, I was the guy during, you know, your finals. Mm -hmm. I, I did. I did have the. I was the guy that did have the answer. I really meant to that. 
Well, well I'm sure that only made you more popular. <laughs> So, <laughs> meanwhile, uh, on these Thursdays and Fridays, you were obviously making a, a big impression at Uptown. And just to kind of set the scene, I mean, Andre Harrell, it's been less than a year, I guess, since he passed. Uh, he, I believe, got his start under Russell Simmons. And so you could see, people can see the kind of connectivity between these guys right through to to you where, how you know, how this industry kind of evolved. But I guess, you know, from starting there as an unpaid intern, how does it evolve to the point where you decide to leave Howard and wind up being full-time at Uptown and really bringing in and shaping some tremendous people? We had on this podcast maybe two years ago, Mary J. Blige, who told us her version of the story of how you and she met. But I mean, between her and I think even before her, uh, Jodeci, you you were making a name for yourself pretty quickly at Uptown. Yes. Um, man, when I got there, I, I was so happy. And um, I was always happy with doing things that that um, I love to do. And everything, just working hard made me happy. I remember in the, it was a heat wave and I had got a, I had other jobs besides the paper route. I had a, I was a busboy at El Torito, a Mexican restaurant. And also I was in the daytime, I would be, but it was during a heat wave. I was a gas station attendant. This is back in the days when you had to pump people's gas. And, and what parts of my job was to also, you know, keep the bathrooms clean and, you know, Gas station bathrooms are the, are, the, are the worst, but I took pride in making sure that my bathroom was so clean just to see a person's face when they came out the bathroom. Like, wow, <laughs> that bathroom's cleaner than my bathroom at home. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and so from the get go, my 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 I was just in love with being on the field, you know, being in the conversations with L.A. and Babyface and Barry Gordy and being like just a quiet young person in the room ready to get the water or to blow, let somebody blow somebody's nose or whatever I had to do, <laughs> you know, to, to sit and get this information. And so I was able to take it in. My learning curve was ex extremely fast. And um, God had put me in a position where the person I was interning for actually got snatched up by Epic Records. And so I asked Andre out to lunch and I know that he really was big in making music that was very authentic to the culture, to the youth culture. And I, I was like, who better to make the music? Who better for this job that my boss has lost than me? I was like, just give me a chance, you know, just give me a chance. And he gave me that chance. And um, I would say like, Literally in, a, in one month, I had, I, you know, somebody didn't show up to the studio. Teddy Riley didn't show up to the studio for a session. And and, and that was the day that, you know, the history was made where I, 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 I utilized the time that I was going to already have to pay for. And I, I took it upon myself to go and produce the remix. And it, it sold two million copies. And from then on, you know, it, it was like that ever since. Well, so how do you explain what makes you so good at what you were doing then, what you've continued to do. I mean, you've, you've talked about the fact, never studied music, don't play an instrument. And yet you seem to have this innate ability to know how to shape a song, shape a career, market both. What do you attribute that to? 
I really attribute that to my vulnerability and my um, my feeling in my heart. You know, I, I I wish it could be complicated, but that's what I go to first. That's when I hear music. Is it is it moving my soul? And so I do that in like a quicker way, in a less methodical way than that an average person. So it's like I really pay attention to my gut, but besides my gut, like my heart, like it, you know, and because things I'm very sensitive, things can make me angry quickly, things can make me sad quickly, because I'm really just in touch with the emotion. And don't worry about it. everything's under control. You know, I have the emotions under control, but <laughs> but it's just. I would say that that's what it is. You know what I'm saying? Like you know, I'm really in tune. And with with a feeling, so I don't make music. I make feelings, and so that's that's the thing that that always gave me like my edge. And then also with my purpose, my purpose of is like if you have success, things can change. If you have success, not for yourself, things can actually change. And just mindful of, of why I'm doing what I'm doing, and um, am I constantly improving things for my for 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 black for black people? And I say that unapologetically. Because, um, you know, you know, my, my tribe needs me, you know, I know there's a lot of different tribes on my way back to my tribe, but I'm, I'm just always trying to run back to my tribe because I know that they are under attack. And it's and, and, and so when I keep that in mind, the stakes get higher and the ball gets hit further every time. Yeah. So so I can make a change and I can make a difference. Well, and I think people should remember you're talking about. Your tribe. This is in the when you're just getting started in the business. It's the late '80s, early '90s when a lot of stuff is happening. Rodney King, you know, just all kinds of stuff like that on both coasts. And I guess you were clearly, it seems, impacted by that, right? Yeah, bro. I, I was conceived in 1969, so um, six late '68. Going into 69, I think. Oh, 60. Yeah. But 68, 69, that's the time that, you know, I was conceived and born. And you're talking about, like, those two years had to be the craziest times in the world from man landing on the moon to, to Martin Luther King, the Malcolm, JFK, all of those different things are going on. And then I'm born into this. And then I'm, you know, as I'm a toddler, I'm in the 70s. And then as as I'm a teenager, I'm in the 80s. And as a young adult, I'm in the late 80s. And things aren't getting better. Things are getting catastrophically worse around me. And, and the, the hope is lessening. And so, you know, the stakes, the stakes were high for me to, to really be successful for the dream that I had. Some people really have dream about just making money and being like the biggest star that they could be. You know, my dream has always been, if you pull footage of me from when I was 18, 19, 20, this is the narrative that I was speaking about, you know? And and um, that, yes, the, the, the 80s, and you know, the crack era, and then the guns that were flooded, all the information that we know now. So now actually thinking about somebody living through that and, um, yeah, you know what I'm saying. So yeah, you know I take all of that. I take I take all of that with me, and you know I rewrite the future, even yeah. whatever anybody else has planned. I ha- I have my own pen, and you know um, I feel like I'm in control of this. God, God is God is control of everything. But what what I think in my head and how I work and what I want to manifest and 
what why I'm doing something that's that's I have to take self accountability for that no matter what I've seen or been through so it fuels me if if anything it makes me a survivor if anything and yeah. it, you know it makes me qualified to be a a leader in these times and you know um prepared to do whatever I have to do in these times that we in and and step up and be a leader well i think the first time that you really crossed a lot of people's radar probably would have been when with originally within uptown and then after uptown you you got bad boy going this is can you just explain you know what you were being it, it was basically you within uptown being able to have your own artists and develop your own stuff and 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 then that continued after you parted ways with uptown yes um i had re- re- reached so much success as an A&R person and, you know, also as a producer that I had leverage. I had leverage um, with, with, with MCA. And so I negotiated with Andre and Uptown to let me have, to, to still keep me ahead of A&R, you know what I'm saying, to re-up on my contract, but also to let me start to follow my dream, which is to have my own label. And so, I, um, you know, I was trying to do that with them, but at the same time, you know, I was young. A lot of the a lot of the fame was going to my head, and um, you know, I started to feel like I kn- I knew it all and my communication skills, and I didn't know how to work well with others. And I was like that, you know, I became like you know that that toxic employee or that toxic teammate that was still great, a great teammate, but you know, just was 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 going through that you know a little crazy patch, and I had so I got fired. And by the way, it's understandable because you were only 21 when you left Uptown. I mean, that's crazy to think about. You think about a 21-year-old today, they don't know what they're doing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, mean, you got to learn. You got to learn that there's a way that you have to, you know, work with people in a way that you have to treat people. And I was glad to learn my lesson early, you know. And, um, yeah, and so from that... I was I was so upset that I had disappointed my mentor Andre. You know I didn't keep the phone was ringing off the hook on the offers. You know, uh, wanted me to go to another team, but I, I wanted to I wanted to live in live and die and with, with Uptown and and it, that was my loyalty. But I was also the person that gave me my first start. So to be fired by him, um, he eventually said I, I didn't fire Sean to hurt him. I fired him to make him rich, you know, <laughs> and he, he he basically said that because my 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 radicalness just wasn't a good mix in, you know, with, with, with a company that was, you know, owned by Sony and was 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 so corporately and, and white, you know, white ran that I was like 10 times Malcolm X in the music industry. And it was like very overwhelming for everybody else, you know, and I was always telling the truth. So. Yeah. Well, I guess it was through L.A. Reid, I think, that you wind up meeting Clive Davis and taking your operation over to Arista. And uh, I just want to remind people, I think your first two big artists there were Craig Mack, of course, and Biggie. And I I loved that at one point I read you'd promoted them as Big Mac, which I didn't uh, I didn't know that until I was prepping for this. But um, just I guess, you know, how how did you because those were the with with Craig Mack, I guess both, you know, Flavor in Your Ear went to the top 10 on 
on the pop charts for Billboard. That didn't happen for songs like that before you. And then, of course, Biggie, who people know you guys were so close. Just how did those two guys, how did you come to to know them? Because I think they were not, it's not like they were thriving necessarily before you and they teamed up. Yeah. I have a knack of finding um, talent that is at, is at such a rough stage you would have to be like an expert to really be able to see what it can be. And I mean, that, that's that's my biggest blessing and that's recognizing talent. I've realized that it's not just in music. It, it, it spans across, you know, um, different industries and different genres and different fields. And, um, and so I found them because they were just um, some guys like, you know, rapping on, on the corner Barely got studio time, but I, I was able to hear a piece of some of their stuff that they could afford. And way you talking about it would have taken it, taken a regular record executive like two, three years later to actually find these cats. So I really just went into the streets and f- w- w- wanted to hear what was going on in the streets. I didn't want it to get so like right now it's like like you know if I'm finding an artist right now, I'm gonna find an artist when they have like ten followers and seven views on YouTube. I don't need all the computer data to, to tell me what the feeling is. And so um, when I saw these two guys, I was like, you know, I want to make a movement. I want to make a movement like Motown of, of hip hop and R&B because that's, that's, that's who I am and who I was, the king of hip hop soul. And I was the first to blend those two things together, soul music and hip hop. And um, that that was like my genre. Teddy had his new jack swing. You know, you had the cats that had bebop. You had jazz. When me and Mary came and Jodeci and Bad Boy, that, that's the hip hop soul era. Yeah, and, and those were the two best I felt like that were disruptive fits. Because I felt in order to come, I had to come with the, the disruption of a lot of melody. You know, there wasn't as much melody in hip hop. So that's one of the things I had learned was the power of melody. And um, yes, and, and I wanted to do something most new labels didn't do, which was to release, release two artists at the same time. But I saw that, that there would be strength in numbers. And so that's when I came up with the Big Mac. He was called Notorious Big. He was Craig Mac. We went to McDonald's one day, gave the staff like, you know, $50 each, went behind the counter, shot 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 a mini commercial was doing disruptive marketing things like that that also enhanced you know the bad boy legacy and what everything was about but um those were those were the best two artists to start off with and you know after that it just was artist after artist after artist yeah i was gonna say i mean like right after that was pretty soon after mace the locks just on and on and on it's amazing how many in those early years i guess one thing i wondered was how early on did you realize that there were these kind of tensions between the coasts? Because you're doing these amazing things on the East Coast, obviously Death Row and other stuff on the West Coast. When did it become about where you were from? It was always about where you were from. You know, New, New York really, really was the, you know, you have to look at it like it was the, um, you know, like baseball or basketball, just you know, rivalries and, and and just, you know, people wanted to be the champions of hip hop. 
So you always had battles coming up from back in the days. This wasn't the first battle. That's how hip hop started. It would be battles of MCs, graffiti artists, and dances. That's we would battle in a peaceful way through the music and through the arts. As we started becoming millionaires and as, you know, the streets got mixed in a little bit with the with the music, the streets was always there with the music, you know. Um, even before us, we had to deal with, you know, the mob and everything like that and the Jewish mob and all of that. So the, the music industry was never a, 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 you know, a pretty, like, oh, it's the music industry, like, you know, this, I don't need to worry about my child. They working it. No, it was like my child. That's that. That was like the next dangerous job. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It was like you know, after there was you had a legal job, all the legal jobs, and and they were kind of safe. But then you had a police officer, and then you had like anybody's in the record industry. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Those are two, two. You know what I'm saying? Drug dealer, you know, bank robber, whatever. Those were all dangerous positions because you had, you had, you had all those worlds mixing and matching. And um, eventually the things, you know, um, East Coast rap had been such a dominant force that, you know, when, when, West, when the West Coast artists, um, especially like Death Row, that was, that was their team and Bad Boy was our team. It was just like you had that little bit of rivalry, but we was always friends. And then, um, you know, it just, the people started getting involved and it was, I still don't have a t- exact answer to this day. It just was something that was some young people getting a lot of money and um, just talking recklessly. And then the whole thing spun out of control into a global feud, which wasn't happening on a daily basis. But it was like, you know, it was just like, you know, the 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 Yankees in Boston, you know what I'm saying? It was what it was. It was those two teams fueled each other. But then um, there's things in life, as I realized, is when sometimes things could get so inflamed, it could get out out of your control. And especially at some point, we were all young people. And so I don't really have the answers to all of that. It wasn't, it, it went from like zero to, a, a, you know, 5,000. So a lot of the in-between you know, is, is, is a blur. It was just like you went from being successful to, you know, life being over and, and being on the top to being on the bottom and, you know, and, and it, being, it being a tragedy. But it wasn't, you know, for me, it wasn't, it wasn't no, nothing really personal. It was just something that my life had, had you know, got into. And it, and it wasn't, it wasn't surprising being in the mu- music industry. For everybody else outside the music industry, they didn't really know how, how how rugged and rough the industry was, and you know how how things could get out of hand. So that's an example of something that got out of hand. Yeah, and I definitely I'm not gonna you know harp on this, but I just want I wonder if you can take me into your mindset of the year 1997 when your company is doing as well as it's ever done right i mean that in terms of the bad boy music side of things just so so many successful things and then at the same in the midst of this is when you know within those six months tupac and biggie i mean i guess did you feel like this everything was kind of collapsing around you did you think that you might be next just what was that was such a turning point in 
I would think your life, certainly the music business, just if you can think back to that terrible moment, what do you, what do you remember thinking or feeling? Yeah, I just felt like giving up. <clears throat> I felt like, you know, it wasn't worth all this bull BS. It was so, just, it was like bullshit. None of it was like real. It was like fake news and it was coming into my life and it was like my mother was getting threatened and it was changing me as a person. It was making me a gangster, you know, because I was having to survive. And, and, and then when Biggie passed, I just wanted to quit, you know. It was the first time I wanted to quit, you know, and um, through music, I had an idea. I was just like, you know, I always tried to make a better situation out of a tragic situation. And, um, you know, I had lost everything, but, you know, I, I still had that fight in me. I got up off the ground. I made missing you. You know, God had his own plan from there. That is one of the, the biggest uh, hits of that era. And to this day, I'll be missing you. And I, I know that it was really the beginning of, of you also kind of being out front as a singer, rapper, as you know, as well. I mean, your solo album, your solo debut album, I think was in the works before that terrible stuff happened. Um, yeah. But it comes out I, in the I, 90s. I, I actually had, I actually had two number one records before I dropped Missing You. Yeah. Before Biggie died, you know, and, um, you know, it was Biggie's idea for me to rap. And um, because I was a producer, and so he was like, okay, Teddy Riley's performing. Dr. Dre just put out an album, you yeah. know what I'm saying? And and he he was like, you know, you, you have what it takes. And so Biggie was actually my manager as me as an artist. And so um, when he passed away, you know, I had a choice to either give up or, you know, I was going to put out the hits yeah. that I had and, and make people dance and try to make the world a better place and try to make this bad feeling feel better. And I just want to note for listeners no way out comes out in 97 this year solo debut album grammy for best rap album and best rap performance top you know top the charts with can't nobody hold me down and then obviously i'll be missing you i mean it was just like uh beginning of a whole new era for for you i think and i i believe was it around then when you know some of the chaos around that time is that where p diddy the, the name came out of because you've been going by that point at that point prior to that as puff puffy right but was it why did where did p diddy come from um p diddy was a name that um that biggie gave me and it was just like when y'all hear about like different names we all everybody from our neighborhood we all had four or five names it was just like nicknames so then when I, you know, when I did it publicly, it was just, it was just a representation of just my many personalities and my many errors. And so um, all the pain that was with Puff Daddy, I just, I was trying to get away from it so bad because it was so much pain. I had just, you know, he called me um, P. Diddy. And then so that's what everybody started calling me. And then so that's, that's where that change yeah. came from. And and at that point, you know what I'm saying, that, 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 that was a different person. That was like, you know, I was war ready at that point. And so it was just a different, different individual. I, you know, know that the second album comes out in 99, third album, 2001. And then for a few years there around, like right around the turn of the century, it seems like your interests expanded, right? Because it was 99 is when you started Sean John. 
2001, you started doing more movies with Monsters Ball and stuff. 2004, Broadway. I guess I just wonder, were you growing tired of music or just more interested in expanding? Was it a branding decision? Just what, what, what led to all these new ventures? It was always the plan, you know, it was always the plan. I had watched Barry Gordy and I, and I remember one time I was watching Mahogany and I was like, man, why didn't she come out with a cologne, her own Mahogany line? Oh, when Motown had the Motown review, I know they had the Ed Sullivan show, but why don't we have like the Motown show? So all of those things, so me getting into television and being one of the top, you know, producers of television for, you know, the 18 to 32 um, type of demographic and teaming up with Viacom and MTV to to Sean John, which I was like, you know, very much in the fashion. Hip hop was having so much inspiration, but wasn't getting paid anything. My thing was big on ownership. You know, you, ha you have to own things in order, uh, us as a people, so going back to my tribe, I was like, you know, we have to own things. We, we can't keep on having a certain talent and not having the, the, the fearlessness to invest in it. And so Sean John, I just started that myself. And I, you know, after years of, of, of doing it and, and aggressively disrupting the industry, um, I won a CFDA award, the first African-American to win a CFDA award. Um, and I was up against Michael Kors and Ralph Lauren and, um, and then, you know, the same thing with the spirit. I would explain it like this. I always had a dream that you'd wake up in the morning, um, your alarm clock would go off and you'd hear a bad boy record. You'd get in the shower. After you get out the shower, you towel off. You spray yourself with some Sean John cologne, put on a Sean John suit, go work at one of the Combs Enterprises companies, work hard all day, get inspired, go home, watch Making the Band, um, put on a Sean John outfit for the nightclub, go to the nightclub, dance to some bad boy records all night. And and then if you got thirsty by chance... Sip a little Ciroc. <laughs> you can sip yeah. a little Ciroc. And then um, when you go home, when you go home, before you go to bed, um, you must drink some aqua hydrate. And, um, yes. <laughs> and, 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 and then you wake up and you do it all over again, whichever way you want to do it. And... Um, you know, that, that, that was just how I saw how I could keep the world authentic by doing the things that I felt I, I would love and also I felt needed a new type of um, representation and tone. And the tone was ownership. And, you know, um, it's, it's different when a black man is calling the shots on black stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like we talking about, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to call what I want to, I'm just trying to call the shots on what I, what I'm the expert at, you know? And so, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, so when it was for us, by us, and the intention was to elevate us, it, it all has come together to this point. It's amazing that you realize that, that vision as much as you have. And now we're coming to this amazing live action short that is getting some Oscar buzz. It's called Two Distant Strangers. And it's not the first time you've kind of lent your name and your uh, spotlight to a film. You did it with Undefeated, which won an Oscar. You did it with Mandela. But I, I think you choose carefully. And I wonder, what was it about this one? How did it get on your radar? And why was it worth you lending your support to it? Oh, man. I, you know, Van Lathan, I, you know, he used to work over at TMZ. And he was like a real... 
you know, um, you know, a real true representation of, of 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 the new black man. You know, he was up in there, and he, you see him in this world, and he's like pushing back on just how our narrative is being portrayed, which people take so take for granted so much the the power of the propaganda and how it affects the African-American psyche. And I saw him standing up for, so he, you know, I was like, man, uh, that, that's a cold brother. I want, I, I want him to make sure he has my number in, in case he ever needs black man, you know, because I'm also a superhero <laughs> by night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, 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 um, and then Joey Badass, that's like my little brother, you know, like, but really like my little brother. And so they got together and they're like, during the pandemic, last thing I'm trying to do is make a movie during the pandemic. And they're like making this movie <laughs> and I'm seeing the entrepreneurial spirit and hustle. And they're every day telling me, you guys see this movie, we want you to produce it with us. We want you, your thoughts, we want, yeah, because you're going to love this is, because they knew my narrative was like, I was at, I was like, this is black insanity. Us being killed over and over Nobody's saying nothing. Everybody's full of shit. Everybody's full of shit, you know, and this has to stop. It's the same thing over and over with doing the same thing, the marching, stop the marching, do the this, da da da, da, da another body, da, da 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 you know, and then, so when I saw the film, and we try to explain this to really, 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 it really started out us trying to explain it to white people over and over and over and over, but even the good white people, everybody knows what it is now. But I was like, wow, this really explains it because how, whatever, whatever ways we were using before, I just don't think they were really getting it, you know? And I don't even think not just white people, black people, all colors just wasn't really getting it. But when I saw this movie, I was like, Hopefully this is the last time we have to explain how it feels to live as a person of color in America. Um, this is a regular young black man, um, an artist, and he just wants to get home to his dog. So that was the beauty of the film. It, it didn't try to explain it in the way of like, oh, the guy that's selling drugs or the this or that or somebody that put themselves in that danger. No, we're talking about the person that is not even we're talking about the, okay, even if you want to say the good black people, which is something, a crazy way to think, okay? They're even stressed out. The rich, I'm stressed out. Like, if a cop comes behind my thing, I'm like, whoa, this can really go any which way. You know what I'm saying? No matter how nice I'm about to be, whatever it is, this thing can really go down any which way. So, he, so nobody is exempt from this. And so when, 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 when Trayvon really put it in perspective. That's the filmmaker. And when I saw this and I was like, wow, they did this during the pandemic and they did it safely. They did it as entrepreneurs, raised up the money, did it in six weeks. And it's making me feel like this. I was like, this is, this is like such a masterpiece, you know, and being involved in Undefeated, which, which was another masterpiece. I was like, I was like, Hey guys, I, I was like, you know, man, First of all, I was proud of y'all. And then, and, and, and second of all, I was just like, do you know how important this is? Because um, things have to change. We have to stop the black insanity. We have to stop the insanity of the world, you know, as, as it, when it comes to people of color. Because it's, it's like, you know, people treat their dogs better than they treat us, you know? And so you understand 
you understand about getting home to your dog, you know? I do. And so, you know, and, and a lot of people understand that just wanting to get home. And, and, and that's what the movie's about. But it shows you the reality that we have to deal with, you know, and um, and I think that's that's what uh, our artist responsibility. So. So, you know, I'm proud to be a part of this movie. I want everybody to see it. That's what I'm good at. <laughs> you know, that's when sometimes when, when, when they call me and uh, I pick, you know, wisely, I'm not the guy that's going to slap his name over things that aren't, you know, true to my narrative and aren't true to the purpose that I have for, you know, making things better for my people. And I think this film will make things better for all of us because we're, we're all the same people, you know, and, and, we, and we deserve to be treated in our lives to be treated with value. But you have to understand that that, that, that repetition of, of, of constantly seeing yourself on video and tape being killed over and over and over, it, it does more than fuck with you. You know what I'm saying? It actually kills your soul and spirit. It kills your soul and spirit while you're alive. Yeah. The film does such a good job showing that because you just see the that no matter what he does, he could do everything right. And he just can't get away from the, from the situation. And do you think you'll do more with film? I mean, you've obviously got some great taste when it comes to that as well, in terms of the material that you care about. Do you want to, could this become a feature that you would be involved with? Could this become, you know, is there more to do in film for you? I would say right now we we, we, uh, we, we this is just focused on the on the on the short form, and that is a very important art as far as for entrepreneurs to get started that may not have the money to do, to, but but to get their name out there with a, with the use of a short film. So that's our purpose, you know. Really, right now is to make sure as many people see sees this film and is affected in a positive way about it. As far as everything with me. Going forward, I'll, I'll definitely be, you know, you'll definitely see me behind more films. You'll see me supporting more creatives and, and using my, my art just like I use my art to find Biggie and Craig Mack to find the solution to Hollywood saying, well, we just don't know any black executives. We don't know no black showrunners. We would give the money, but we don't we don't we don't have because. No ecosystem has been created for it. And so I look forward to talking to you and the rest of Hollywood about the ecosystem and about the solve, but most importantly, about making great art at this caliber that will that will keep us all getting better and um, at not just as artists, but as human beings. And I just close with one last question. I, I think that as people have listened to this conversation, there's a lot of lessons they can learn from your life, obviously hard work and just so much. But one thing that I, I thought maybe we could close on is in 2016, you had this bad boy family reunion tour and you brought it to the forum in LA and near the end of it, you brought out Dr. Dre and Snoop, who again are sort of the icons of the West coast in the way that you're the icon of the East coast. And I guess that would have been unimaginable just a few years earlier and I wonder what can people learn from that? What is the takeaway about the passage of time and, and maturity and all of that? Yes, I think that um, looking towards the future and learning from our past mistakes, we can't live in, in the past forever. But um, as we go forward in the future, we quabble and we 
just as people, like the things are are are, are so insignificant in the, the 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 whole totality of the universe. Because a lot of people get so like there's just Earth. There's not just Earth. There's other things that are going on, and so you know it's what you do with your power, and so. We thought it was important because it, 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 we're getting asked these questions all the time. And we've grown from that situation. We've learned from that situation. And we're also brothers. And um, we were able to realize that. And it was a shame that, 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 that we had to, you know, go through what we went through. But we went through it. And now we're, we're, it was important for things to come full circle. We're in times now where things are coming full circle. We're in times now where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And there's no way around that. And everybody has to deal with their past. And everybody's going to have to figure out what is the decision you're going to make when you have the power. Are you going to make the call and make everything better and really, really make the change and make a difference? Or is it just going to be talk? And so, you know, when, when we came to the forum and um, we did that. It was it was really about you know unifying a culture, and also healing some old wounds. And 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 the world has a chance to do that any day, any day, any day. You you'd be surprised what people will forgive people for if you really sincerely are sorry and you really sincerely want change. But if you don't fucking really want change, then I'm not gonna stand by. I'm gonna come and get that change. And um. And, and, and do everything that I can to make sure that we stop this black insanity that I call it. Well, thank you so much for the music and everything else and for taking the time to do this. And uh, obviously people need to go see Two Distant Strangers and uh, Two Distant see what we're talking Strangers. About. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, one of the best shorts that I've ever seen, you'll love it. It's beautiful because it's a short, and all y'all have ADD anyway. So you just <laughs> put it on. It's just a couple of minutes, and it's Trayvon Free and Martin Desmond Rowe, and just to the, everybody, Kevin Durant is the exec producer on there mm-hmm. with me and Jesse and and everybody. It's it's just it's it's also about us coming together. It was a group of us that came together. And the things that we could do together, if we do them together, we could actually, you know, change this world. And everybody's been trying to change the world for a long time. But I feel like we are the people to do it in these times. So let's go. Thanks, Sean. Take care. Appreciate it. All right. Peace. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.